0: So Michael Burry just came out and said he is expecting hyperinflation just like the Weimar Republic. Freaking A. This freaks me out. My name is Matthew Spazidi and welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazidi program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. Hope you guys like the intro a little bit. I decided to do a little bit of an intro of what we're going to be talking about right before the music plays. I thought that was kind of cool. So, I don't know. If we, if, if you guys like it, we'll we'll continue to do stuff like that. I thought it was very interesting and I've seen I've heard, honestly I've heard other podcasters do it that way, so I thought it would be kind of cool to try it out myself. And you know, I don't know. See see what happens. But just like that intro stated, we're going to be talking about Michael Burry and his prediction of hyperinflation, in a sense, very much like the Weimar Republic or Venezuela. We're going to be talking about whether or not I think that's going to be coming and, and whether how likely that is to be seen in America today. You're going to be getting my opinion, and we've been talking a lot about inflation. So last week, I basically just chose a couple of different... You know, uh, podcast episodes about two really really great topics, and I hope you guys really enjoyed those. I mean, I, I thought those were really really great topics that I did a while back. You know, I, I find that they're more evergreen in nature, so I, I like to—I uh, don't know—I keep them in my back pocket. Just you know, you never know what comes up. You know, throughout the throughout the years and whatnot. So if there's like a week, maybe it's my birthday week or, or my my anniversary or something, then you know, I might not—I might only be record, I might just record one episode, or I might not record any, and I might just like pick stuff from the archives that I know many of you have not heard yet. So if you're new to the show, I always like to ask you guys to take the 10 episode challenge, right? You guys have heard me do that a lot. Now, if you're just joining me, I I probably haven't done done it in the past couple of shows, but I normally ask you guys to do it, which basically you just go back and listen to the last 10 episodes. That's all you do. And the main reason is because I feel like there's a lot of value back there and I'm going to be referencing things in the past that you guys just you're not going to be aware of if you don't go back and listen to that. But, you know, I think there's just a lot of value. You'll get more value out of the show if you go back and listen to the last 10 episodes as opposed to just listening today. We don't talk about news, whether it's economic, political, financial, whatever it is. We don't talk about it in a vacuum, right? So I, I, anyways, that's why I ask you guys to go do that. But, you know, but even if you did that, in this case, you probably would never have gotten those episodes. They're so far back that you never, you never would have, uh, have heard them or, or anything of the sort. So, anyways, th- that's why I decided to pick those those particular episodes out. Which you know they're a fan, they're a favorite of mine. I really liked them, so, and I think they're they're great information for you guys to be aware of. So, but anyways, that said, we're getting off on a tangent there. Today, we're going to be talking about Michael Burry. We're going to be talking about the 2008 financial crisis and what he's predicting. The reason we're going to talk about the 2008 financial crisis is because it really plays in here to what Michael Burry was talking about. And I want to kind of try my best as I can to effectively just try to to, to make you guys aware of, of what caused the last crisis and what the response was and how it ties into this crisis as well. So, and what Michael Burry is saying. So for those of you who don't know, Let's go ahead and hop into all this. Michael Burry is an investor, okay? If you guys haven't ever watched The Big Short, it's a movie. It starred Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, and Steve Carell. And uh, By the way, I mean, they all did absolutely amazing. Steve Carell, like, I'm used to seeing him in comedy. So the idea that he played such a serious role this time around I mean, I mean absolutely amazing blue blew me away he did a they all did an amazing job but I was more probably blown away by Steve Carell's character just because again he normally plays such a goofy comedy oriented character to see him play at least in most of the stuff that I've seen maybe he's done more serious stuff uh, outside of the big short but for me, I'm not used to seeing him in that way. I mean, everything that I've seen, like Anchorman in the past, and Evan Almighty, and a whole bunch of other really funny stuff, you know, he's always played a very, very comedy-oriented role. So the idea that he played something very serious, it was very interesting to see him play that. So, if you haven't seen the big short, it's Absolutely an amazing, amazing movie. They do such a good job at showing what happened in the 2008. The only problem is that they don't, they focus all on the greed and the corruption in Wall Street and the banks. What they don't focus on enough or at all for that matter is all the government regulations That caused all of these problems, the government guarantees to these big organizations, the government laws that forced the banks to basically do this, that protected the banks in the event that they were taking all this risk, and in the event that it all went bad, they knew that they were going to get bailed out. They knew it wasn't going to come back on them. You see, the system was... All the incentives that these big banks and hedge funds and financial institutions, the incentives that they had were to behave in this manner. Now, if they were principled individuals and they actually had a moral compass, they may have said, no, we're not going to, but... It's not to say they were all greedy, horrible people. They are probably very good people that worked at those institutions. But the fact of the matter is when you incentivize people to do this type of stuff, guess what? In most cases, this is what they're going to do. And that's exactly what the federal government did. I think it was the Community Reinvestment Act that basically said that you could not discriminate as to who gets a mortgage. That, you, that you're not allowed to say that you're not allowed to have a mortgage because you're a minority. But this also goes much farther than simply just minority and discrimination they also started to say you can't look at somebody's credit score because they're a minority or you can't use things like that against them you have to lend money to them this was a law a regulation and i'm sure it's it goes much more it's much more complicated than what i just said but this is one of those things that caused them to lend money out to so many people who could not afford it right right which was absolutely going on with Acorn Loans, for the, those of you who don't know, and we'll, we'll get into that too. So, anyways, it was a really great movie, and so, but really what we're gonna be focusing on right now is Christ- Michael Barry's character, or is Christian Bale's character. Christian Bale played a guy named Michael Barry, okay? Michael Barry, so I guess. Let's actually do some back history. Before we get into the movie per se, let's go ahead and and do some back history. So the big short revolves around what caused all the financial stuff that effectively caused the 2008 financial crisis, okay? And, you know, what it says is that these greedy Wall Street corporations, these bankers, it was mostly bankers, uh, bankers basically created a product called a mortgage-backed security. Okay. So for a long time there was ways of making money off real estate but it wasn't really that lucrative, you know, it wasn't all that. Well, eventually they came around and they created ways on betting on the real estate market. They get, they created ways to make more money off of the real estate industry. They call these mortgage-backed securities. What is a mortgage-backed security is basically it's a derivative, okay? So a derivative, it sounds complicated. If you are in, into math and science, it's not that, okay? It's not a derivative in that sense. All a derivative is, is a financial product whose value is derived, comes from an underlying asset or groups of assets. That's it. That's all a derivative is. It's just, it's a product, it's a financial product that you can purchase where the value is derived off the asset it represents, Okay, uh, options trading. Options trading is very much like this. If if I was to get into an options contract, and I was to buy an options contract, that is a derivative. An options contract is a contract that says I have the ability, I have the right, but not the obligation to purchase a hundred shares of. A certain amount of stocks. Now, granted, they are coming up with options that purchase less than 100 shares, but I don't know if those have been created yet. They may have, I haven't been keeping up with that, but for right now, the most common options are those that purchase 100 shares if you decide to actually exercise the contract. Okay. And you have a certain amount of time in which you can exercise the contract and you pay a certain amount of money in order to have this ability, in order to purchase the contract in the first place. The value of this contract is derived from the 100 shares. That it represents. So, if it's hundred shares in Apple, it's going to have a pretty a pretty beefy value, right? Apple Apple's over a hundred dollars a share, and you know so on and so forth. So that's what a derivative is. It's just a financial product whose value is derived from an underlying asset or you know a group of assets and things of that nature. So that's what it is. But a mortgage-backed security is a derivative, and what a mortgage-backed security it it, it should sound. <laughs> It's exactly how it sounds, right? Or at least exactly how it sounds in my mind. A mortgage-backed security is just an investment device, an investment product that who, that's backed by mortgage loans. And, and they're very, very similar to a bond but they're typically like a bundle of home loans, okay? You've got uh, mortgage-backed securities are not normally just one loan that's underlying this this financial product, this security is what they call it. The, a security is really more of a financial product that you can buy, very similar to bonds and stocks, okay? It's a fancy term. Uh, what you, you find when you get into Wall Street and all this kind of stuff in the financial industry is that you will actually find that the vast majority of terms, they sound really, really, really complicated, but but they're really not they're really once you understand what they mean, they're like, oh, like derivatives like like in college you would do derivatives and mathematical equations and things of that nature. but when you hear about what a derivative is here, it's like, oh, it's you know it's just a it's a financial product whose value is derived off an underlying asset It's like oh. Well, that's easy to understand. That's not hard. Not like der- not like math or things of that nature. Which I'm not trying to say that derivatives of math are hard, but you know, some people would definitely find them difficult, and and you know, some people find even you know, a lot of things in math hard. So, anyways, with that said, okay, a mortgage-backed security. It's actually a financial product that represents a bundle or a group of, of home loans, of mortgages, and stuff like that. And the reason it's similar to a bond is because of how they get of how you get paid. If you invest in mortgage-backed security, you make money based off of the interest rates that are paid on those mortgages. And you make money through periodic bond-coupon payments. Okay, so if you own a bond, you get paid in coupon or, or, or in what is called coupon payments right they will pay you over time for holding the bond and I, I'm not I've never actually held a bond so I'm not a hundred percent sure I fully understand a hundred percent like how exactly the mechanics work but I understand the gist of it right so you you buy a bond and you get paid via interest via an interest rate and that interest rate is I don't know if it, if, if it pays you monthly or annually or and that's the thing I'm not really sure about but they do pay you throughout the year periodically. And at the end of the lifespan of the bond, they give you, you know, when the bond matures, they give you your money back and then you get to keep your money plus all of the money that you got when they, that they were paying you throughout the year or throughout the time of holding the bond. And so that's, that's the general idea of it. And mortgage-backed securities are very similar. Okay, they're, they're very, very similar. And, you know, how these were created was a long time ago. You had all these mortgages and, you know, there, again, there wasn't really a way of making a ton of money with it aside from selling mortgages and interest rates and stuff. But then people came up into Wall Street and they're like, hey you know, they came to these banks and they're like, we can make a massive killing by doing this. Let's take these mortgages and let's combine them together into mortgage-backed security or the acronym MBS. Let's combine them into these mortgage-backed securities. And then we can sell those mortgage backed securities off to other people. So a lot of banks, what they would do is they would go ahead and give people mortgages and then they would bundle those mortgages together into mortgage backed securities and then sell them off to other financial institutions. And that's how it happens. So, and where this started going bad was that they started over time that, that because of government regulations, okay, because of government incentives, they started to create something called acorn loans okay acorn loans i forget who actually create who who created them but acorn loans were loans that were stated income loans okay acorn is a five hundred one C three company, so it's a chari- it's so it's an or- so it's a nonprofit organization, I believe. Uh, Acorn, the company that that issues Acorn loans, and some, and I don't know if every single loan that they issued was this way, but I know they did stated income loans, and this is where things start to get very dicey, okay? Because what they did was they started allowing people to state their income, but guess what? They didn't really do any research. They didn't do any research at all. They just allowed you to state your income, and then they gave you a mortgage. What's more is that you could even get mortgages, and I don't know if it was through ACORN particularly, but this was another issue. You could even get mortgages that were interest rate only. That that you didn't pay any money into the actual principal of the, of the mortgage, you only paid to the to the interest rate, which reduced your overall payments. How crazy is that? So basically, there's no hope of you ever paying this mortgage off. So a lot of times, these types of loans were used by investors to flip houses. So if you wanted to get into house flipping, many people know what that is. You basically you buy a fixer up or a house that needs some work. You can force appreciate the value of the home. You can make the you can force the value. You the, the, the price of that home up. You could just force it to go higher. And you would do this by increasing, by upgrading it, by upgrading the countertops in the kitchen or the flooring all throughout the house or, you know, upgrading the fixtures, making it look nicer, improving the landscape, the bathrooms, the just the whole house. You could do this by upgrading the home. And then after you're done doing that, you could flip it By you know, for more money. So as long as the market didn't tank on you while you were doing this, you could almost always flip it and sell it in a red hot economy or in a red hot real estate market. You could sell it for more money than what they was going for. And in a red hot market, this is even better. You could do it in in a market that's just kind of going sideways as well. But it's better to do it in a red hot market because real estate values are going up all the time, anyways. And then you come in and force appreciate it. You can sell the house for a ton of money. But you see, if you have if you're doing that and you don't have the money to, to buy the house uh, you know outright, what you would do is you use other people, what, what Robert Kiyosaki would say, use other people's money to maximize your investment. Now, I'm not trying to say this is anything that I think that anybody should do, but people did it all the time. They borrowed money where they were only paying interest on the home loan, and they weren't paying principal, so it was a smaller payment for them, and this gave them the ability to flip it a lot easier and to maximize their profits as well. So anyways that was that, those are some people that use the prince the, the interest only loans but i i don't think that they were used a lot with um let's uh with with actual like homeowners and stuff they weren't really used very much by them as far as i'm aware so but still they very very still very risky assets they're very risky things to do but they did stated income homes for people who wanted houses and they gave loans out to people who had no business in having a mortgage people who could not afford it who were doomed to default and doomed to failure that's what they started doing And, you know, what happened is in these mortgage-backed securities, at first, it was a lot of, it was mortgages. And what they would do is they would put, combine these mortgage-backed securities into what are called tranches. Okay, so this is another another complicated term. What is a tranche? Tranche, and I'm I'm reading this actual definition right here because I wasn't 100% sure about it. Uh, So I went to investopedia.com. I will post the link in the description. I'll post the link. To all of the terminology that we talked about here. So if you guys want to go read up on it, you can go ahead and do that. It's it's all from investopedia.com. So it's really, really, it's pretty good stuff. Most of it's not really politically biased or anything of that nature. It's just telling you what the financial term means. But okay, here's here is this. A tranche is a French word meaning a s- slice or an option or a portion. In the world of investing, it's used to describe a security that can be split up into smaller pieces and subsequently sold to investors. Tranches are common with mortgage-backed securities, which are a basket of mortgage loans that are pulled together by for investors to buy, okay? So tranches are a collection of securities that are separated and grouped based on various characteristics and sold to investors. They can have different maturities, credit ratings, and yields or interest rates. They are common with mortgage-backed securities, which are a basket of mortgage loans that are pulled together for investors to buy. So that's kind of just a repeat there. That was the key takeaways right there from that page. So just for you guys are knowing, I I actually already know a lot about the bulk of this kind of stuff because I've watched a big short multiple times um, over the years I just I think it's a great movie to watch anyways I mean you don't normally see a movie based off of financial markets that is actually really entertaining. Unlike, you know, unlike a lot of other movies, The Big Short was incredibly, incredibly entertaining. It was rated R. There's a lot of language in it and whatnot. So, but it was, it was still, it was an incredibly entertaining and educational movie. And because I'm a big uh, finance trading investor guru kind of guy, because I'm a big enthusiast, I love all that stuff. I'm a big nerd uh, in that area because of that. Admittedly, I I like it. I like it a lot. Now, no, I don't go watching it on my date nights with my wife or whatever you know, those movies are, you know, your, your rom-coms, your, like, romantic comedies, or, or or just romantic movies in general and stuff of that nature, or sometimes action movies, you know, any, anyways, that's beside the point. The point is, is that it's not like I watch it all the time, but I have watched it multiple times, and also, I've done a ton of research on this stuff, so I actually, I knew what a derivative was, mortgage-backed securities, you know, I knew what stated income loans were, uh, Michael Berry credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, I know about all that stuff. tranches I had never, actually researched, which is one of the reasons I pulled it up. Now, I have all these other stuff pulled up because I wanted to just jog my memory. I wanted to say, okay, is this really what, I, what I've what i known it to be? Let's make sure I'm right. I know I've looked it up in the past, but I haven't looked at it in a long time. So that's why I got all this stuff up here. So I will make that available to each and every one of you by just posting the links there if you guys want to go check it out for yourself do some reading up on the issue, you guys can go ahead and do that. And there's tons of links in these articles, so you guys can literally get sucked into this stuff. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. There's tons of like articles and you'll get down a rabbit hole real quick if you enjoy this type of stuff. And it's one of the best ways to educate yourself. So anyways, that's stated. You're you're coming here. You're getting the knowledge from me as well. That's only going to benefit you. And there's a reason why I'm telling you this, okay? We'll get to that towards the end, but uh, anyways, so a tranche. So basically, they would take these mortgage-backed securities, and they would combine them into tranches. And each tranche had certain were were kind were divided based off of credit ratings. Okay, each one of these tranches had mortgage-backed securities in them, and there were credit agencies that would come out and they would effectively rate the quality of these investments. And at first, so you had like triple A's, double A's, you had stuff like that, right? And the way it would work is the higher the rating, the less, the, the, the safer it was assumed to be. And therefore, you didn't make as much of an investment, right? Or you didn't make as much money off of it. So the interest rate paid you less money. It wasn't as good of an investment as the lower rated tranches and mortgage-backed securities were. See, the lower rated ones gave you more money to because they were implied to be more risky. But what eventually started happening is that they all became highly risky and yet nobody realized it. Nobody realized it but a handful of people. And that was like and Michael Burry was one of those. You see, what they started to do was at first they had really good mortgages that were very, very high rates of of likelihood that people would pay off these mortgages and stuff. There was really no real concern at the time, or at least that they would see, that these individuals would not pay off these mortgages. I mean, barring some kind of cataclysmic financial, you know, event which eventually did happen that most people thought was never ever going to happen, you know, barring something like that, these people were going to be able to pay off these mortgages. But over time, the high-quality mortgages and mortgage-backed securities kind of they started dwindling the the I mean it's like supply and demand right you know there's not an infinite number of high quality mortgages that are out there there's not an infinite number of high quality mortgage-backed securities that are out there as a result so eventually they ran out of the highly reliable stuff and then they started filling it with crap and nothing but crap they started filling them with stated income loans. They started, you know, uh, well, they start they started filling the tranches with mortgage-backed securities that had stated income loans on them. You see, this is what the banks would do. They would lend or other companies, they would start lending out these mortgages to people who couldn't really afford them. They started lending out th- all these this money with stated income loans and things of that nature. And then to offset the risk. To get rid of the risk, they would effectively turn around and sell the, they'd bundle them all together in a mortgage-backed security, and then they would sell them. What was very interesting, though, is that many financial institutions and banks ended up rebuying these products backed, because it was under the assumption, because of all the manipulation that the Fed was doing, keeping interest rates historically low, for. Decades for a long period of time, keeping interest rates really, really low, funneling money into the, these markets, lending out money that the banks do not have with fractional reserve banking, things of this nature. With all this stuff going on, it was seen by many people that the real estate market was a guaranteed bet. The real estate, real estate only goes up and it will never go down. So it wasn't really seen as risky perception was warped you know the perception was warped because the context has changed the con the the narrative behind this information has changed the the context was that real estate was a guaranteed bet you couldn't go wrong with betting on real estate the mark you know real estate only ever goes up i'm sure many of you guys have heard that real estate always goes up or you know nowadays people say (laughs) nowadays people say real estate almost always goes up but you still hear that lie you still hear that lie all the time. That real estate doesn't ever do ever does go down or very rarely, it only ever goes up. In 2008 it was just a you know, was just a, a very odd situation, very very unusual, and they don't think it could happen again. It could. It will. Okay? It's it's a it's a load of BS. Do not believe the the, the narrative. Don't believe that. Real estate is incredibly risky. The real estate market tends to move slow most of the time, but it can move quick. Just like many other markets, you know the real estate market is not like stocks and whatnot. It's not as nimble; It doesn't move as quickly because it's it's less uh, liquid. It's harder to buy homes and sell homes. It takes more time, right? You know you're going into debt a lot, uh, into very very uh, high levels of debt when you're buying a house, assuming you can't you know just buy it outright. So, anyways, it's not as liquid as a stock. If I buy a hundred and fifty-seven dollar stock, I can sell it pretty quick, especially if it has high volume. And all that means is just. I could sell it very fast, assuming that there's a lot of buyers out there okay uh, high volume means there's a lot of people who want what you have and they're willing to buy it from you it's and it's and it's easy so anyways that's what that means let's get back to what I was talking about so over time, these tranches started to get filled. And these more with really bad mortgage backed securities that were much riskier than what these credit rating agencies were actually saying. They started saying this is like a double A and triple A when in reality it was probably more in the triple B, double B. It might have been, been in the triple Cs or double Cs. So they were. They were rating, a lot of these these credit rating agencies were incentivized to do this, mind you, okay? Everybody was incentivized to do this because of government manipulation, government and the Federal Reserve, okay? It all heavily incentivized these institutions to do this kind of stuff. The credit agencies were no different. These credit rating agencies came out and they ran out of really good stuff to rate. So you know what? They weren't about to start rating this stuff bad. They started rating a ton of these financial products a lot higher than what, uh, than what they should have. And, and the, the, in the movie, the argument was that, well, if we don't do it, they're just going to go down to the next credit rating agency and do it there. But we're getting paid to do it and we want the business. So we're just going to rate them, even if it's not good. So you couldn't even trust the ratings. And this is where Michael Burry start comes into the story. Michael Burry was an investor very 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 intelligent man super smart guy right very very good with math and numbers incredibly analytical guy was effectively a guy who who saw the writing on the wall he started asking these he started doing research and he started getting wind of all of this this stuff that was going on with regards to the mortgage-backed securities and the tranches and all that stuff. And he started actually reading on how many of these mortgages were actually default. You know, they're lending out money. He he realized that the standard for lending out money was incredibly, incredibly low. And he realized that, oh my gosh, these people are lending out money to, who can't afford it. And, And there's defaults all over the place for like ones that are really, really supposed to have really high ratings. This is insane. So, he decided he wanted to f- try to find a way to make money off this. Like any good investor, like any good speculator, when you see stuff like this in the markets, you're like, there's an opportunity. How can I make money off this? This He, he viewed this as guaranteed. It's like a guaranteed effect. And it was, you know, he that's how he viewed it. So he had a hedge fund and he had a lot of investment dollars. He had millions and millions of dollars under him. I mean, it was a small hedge fund, okay? It was it was a small company. It wasn't like some massive big, you know, institution. It was a small hedge fund. I guess you could say kind of maybe out in the middle of nowhere or whatnot. It wasn't like you know, on, I don't know if he I don't think he was on Wall Street or anything. Not not literally speaking. But um it was a small time hedge fund. It's, it's more or less what he was. And so Michael Berry goes to the banks. And and he says, I want to know if there are is a way. He's like, I want to buy insurance against all of these mortgage-backed securities, these derivatives, these tranches. I want to buy insurance against them, so that I will, so that effectively, if they go bust and default, you will pay me money. And and and, and the banks were like, What? Are you freaking kidding me? Who is this guy? You, we don't have we don't have a product that's like that. You want to bet against the U.S. housing market? I mean, the, you, you, I mean, he's like the, the, in the movie. They were like, "Hey, man, we'll take your money." I mean, we are more than willing to take your money if that's what you want. But this is this is highly unadvisable. This is stupid. And they were in the movie. It portrayed them as snickering and just laughing at him, and you felt so bad for the guy. Like you felt really bad. Like they just they just. They belittle. They were belittling him. They were laughing at him. They're like, "What? This guy is insane!" But sure, we'll take his money. Why not? So they created an insurance product called a credit default swap. I know, right? Doesn't that sound like incredibly complicated? A credit default swap. If most of you guys who have heard that, you're it probably just a right over your head. You're like, your eyes just gloss over. You're like, I, I don't what the, what the heck is that, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I get it. I totally get it. It's not—it's not easy to understand, uh, not when you're just thinking about when you're just reading the name again. Everything in Wall Street, just like law. Okay, if you go into the the, in, the law industry, uh, the legal industry, what you will find is that there's a lot of term. There's a lot of things that are not hard to understand once you get delve into it, but. They have fancy terminology that makes them sound much more complicated than what they really are. Well, financial industry is really no different. You see, the idea is that they want you to be, they want to keep you out of it. They don't want you to understand it. They want you to have to go to them every single time so that to stay out of it. In fact, on top of that, they want it to, they want it because they're trying to create smoke and mirrors so that nobody knows what they do. It's all magic, Right. It's all fairy dust and and godmothers and witches and wizards and crap like that. That's what it is, right? So... That's what they want you to think. Not only does this keep regulators out of the mix and unaware of what's really going on so that they can lobby and get laws passed in their benefit, not like, on, honestly, if the freaking, if the freaking politicians knew it anyways, it wouldn't matter. They're all snakes and, and, and crooked as a question mark kind of people anyways. So they wouldn't have cared even if they did understand, but they don't understand. They don't understand. And most people don't understand. Most normal people don't even understand okay? You know, they, these terminologies are designed to make you feel stupid. They're designed to make you feel unintelligent and like you're not smart enough to understand it. And the fact of the matter is, if you do some simple reading, some simple research that doesn't take you go very long, you will find out that, oh, a lot of this stuff really isn't that hard to understand. A lot of it's just fancy names for stupid things. Take credit default swaps. We're about to talk about that. All it is is it's a financial derivative. Again, we talked about what a derivative is. A derivative is a financial product that you can buy that whose value is derived off of the asset that it represents, right? So the asset that it underlies it. I mean, it could be one asset. It could be a group of assets. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, is that the value is, is derived off something else that it represents, okay? That's what a derivative is. But a credit default swap is a derivative or a contract, that effectively allows an investor to make money in the event that a loan goes into default. That's what it is. That's what a credit default swap is. Okay? It's, it's effectively insurance. So here, here's the definition of a credit default swap. I thought it would be valuable to read this. From Investopedia.com, a credit default swap is a financial derivative or contract that allows an investor to swap or offset his or her credit risk with that of another investor. For example, if a lender is worried that a borrower is going to default on a loan, the lender can use a credit default swap to offset or swap that risk. To swap the risk of default, the lender buys a credit default swap from another investor who agrees to reimburse the lender in the case the borrower defaults. Most credit default swaps will require an ongoing premium payment to maintain the contract, which is like an insurance policy. A credit default swap is the most common form of credit derivative and may involve municipal bonds, emerging market bonds, mortgage-backed securities, or corporate bonds. So, and again, all it is, it's an insurance. It's like an insurance policy. It's saying that it's always used with, with bonds. So what are bonds? Bonds are debt. It's a form of debt. It's a it's a form of debt that you can invest in, and you can make money off of. That's what a bond is. So when it comes to these loans, you can buy insurance that basically states that well, if these loans, if the these uh, derivatives, these like mortgage backed securities, these financial products that are whose value is derived based off of the loans, okay. And again, the loans are in themselves a derivative, right? If you got a mortgage, you had to pay a certain amount of money for that mortgage. Well, how do they determine the value of the mortgage? They determine it by looking at the value of the house, right? So the mortgage, the loan itself is a derivative. The value of the loan is derived from the underlying asset. But in this case, the value of the mortgage-backed security is derived from the underlying mortgages, okay? So just, just keep that in mind. But, and it, but a credit default swap is like an insurance. All it does is it gives you the ability to make money to protect you against them defaulting. That's all it does. And you have to pay a premium. And so Michael Berry came in and he said, I want to buy insurance against all of these mortgages, these mortgage backed securities. Cause he's saying that I want to buy. An insurance policy against them. And what he understood because he had, he took the time to look. He took the time to do the research that all of these other idiots did not understand. These greedy, greedy bankers and financial institutions. These idiots had no idea because they never even looked. They just assumed the prevailing narrative, right? That, oh, the real estate market is solid. It's golden. It's a guarantee. So like, this guy's a dummy. He's an idiot. Let's create a product for him because we want to take his money, right? You see, Michael Berry knew how greedy they were. He knew the system and he used it to his advantage. He allowed them to think that he was a moron. Now, I'm not trying to say he acted like a moron, but he allowed them. He didn't, he didn't correct them. He, he let their greed take hold so that he could make money. In fact, it was the fact that you know Michael Burry wanted to make money cuz he likes the investment, he likes what he does, he likes making money too. It was that very idea of making money that made him want to do this in the first place. So, they so that the banks and the financial institutions created the credit default swap. And they allowed him to pay the premium. So when you get a credit default swap, you have to pay a premium, right? A premium is just whatever you have to pay in order to keep the credit default swap alive and to keep it active, okay? If you stop paying, then you default and you got to, you know, pay some kind of penalty, I'm sure, kind of like a loan, you know, it's very, very similar to a loan. Um, Although with normal insurance, if you just stop paying, you know, the, the typical punishment is you just don't have insurance anymore. Uh, and if you sign a contract saying that I'm going to pay for a certain amount of time and then you don't, then usually you might have to pay to get out of that contract or I'm not even sure if there is something like that, but you you get the idea, right? I mean, kind of belaboring the point, the purpose but the the point is they created these credit default swaps. They didn't actually exist before Michael Burry. And now Michael Burry comes in, they create these credit default swaps because they think, oh yeah, we're going to take this sucker's money. You know, this is great. This is great. More money for us. So Michael Burry buys millions upon millions of dollars worth of this stuff. And he's paying millions of dollars each and every month. Over time, his investors that he's got the money, he was trying to do everything in his power to keep them from pulling their money out. Because if he did, he was actually losing for several years. He, He did this early, right? He did this very, very early on, maybe a little too early, but you never can time these things. He just knew that it's going to be soon when this stuff is going to tank. So he might have gotten in several years in ahead of time. I think it was like, gosh, I don't really remember. It was, but, but he, he got in several years ahead. And basically, he took losses. His fund took losses several years in a row. And his investors started to get squeamish, and they started getting very angry. They started to say, I'm going to sue you because Michael Burry is like, yeah, because of the nature of this, I can't let you pull your money out. That will destroy everything that we're going to do. But you just got to trust me. You just got to hang it in there. You hang in there longer, you know, that type of stuff. And eventually, Michael Burry was right. The housing market tanked. As we all know, the, the market started to tank. People started to realize that these mortgage-backed securities were toxic, okay? And, and Michael Burry was not the only person that saw this. There were other people that did too. There were other people that saw this as well. And they also, and, and the Big Short makes that very clear. He was not the only person. And, and the Big Short only covered a few people that did. I'm sure there was even more. But there weren't a lot. Michael Burry tried to sound the alarm. He tried to be the prophet of doom, if you will. He tried to sound the alarm. No one would listen to him. And eventually he was vindicated. He was proven correct. That all of these mortgages that people had been lending out, stated income loans, acorn loans, these mortgage-backed securities that were AAA, double A's, that had no basis in reality, they had no backing, there was nothing to suggest they should have been rated as high as they were. All of these, these mortgages, people started to default. People couldn't pay on them any longer. Eventually, the system, the economy, and the real estate market hit critical mass, right? It just it reached a breaking point where people had been in default. They had been in for, for quite some time now. And the system finally started to collapse. Michael Burry made out with, I think, over $700 million dollars He came back to these bankers and he had his hand out. He was like, come on, pay up, pay up. And they wouldn't take his calls at first. According to the movie, you know, they were very reluctant to take his calls. But eventually they did. Eventually they paid up. He made a killing. He made over 700, over 700 million dollars. He took a hundred million for himself. It's what he earned. Just a fraction of what he made. You know what? The funny thing is, is that in the movie, it shows this too. Not one of the investors ever came back to him and apologized. Not one of his investors ever said, I'm sorry for not trusting you. No, just took their money and ran. And, um, you know, in the end, they were very, very hurt. In the end, I think they were very offended by the idea that Michael Burry was right. Because the system that they believed in wasn't what they thought it was. And they blame, and I guess maybe in some case, they I, I don't know, I could be wrong with this, but maybe they blamed Michael Burry for, you know, making them aware of it, even though he made them a massive amount of money. I, I don't understand that. I really don't. That's, that's my take. That's my take on that. I don't know why they didn't thank him. I mean, I, I would have been like, if I was that, I would have been like, man, I am so sorry. You are absolutely right. I will ne- I will not question you again in the future. I am so sorry. You you're amazing. Thank you so much for not letting me pull my money out. It was a big blessing. Thank you. But you know, uh I don't think a lot of people but a lot of them didn't do that. I don't think any of them did. And so anyways, uh the, the story uh, is is pretty well known. We all kind of know what happened, right? The financial market collapsed. Big banks were getting kicked in the teeth. They were about to go under. The banks would have it would have been defaulting at this point. They would have gone under. They would have closed down. But the the uh, basically what happened: the banks came, but the Federal Reserve came in, printed a whole bunch of money. The Federal Reserve basically took all of those toxic assets. Those mortgage-backed securities, those tranches, they took them all. They bought them all. They took them all and they put them all on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, basically. Effectively creating millions upon millions, trillions, in fact, trillions of dollars and putting it on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. How insane is that? So instead of allowing these banks to fail, like they should have, instead of allowing, you know, these big CEOs, these executives to going to jail because of the corrupt in, you know things they were engaged in, instead of throwing the politicians in jail and reforming the system because of all the regulation and all the incentives that were causing all these bad, corrupt actors to behave in this manner. And it's not to say that they don't take any blame for this here, okay? It's not to say that they don't take any blame. They were they were willing to engage in it all for the sake of money right they were willing to do things that are ethically and morally wrong for the sake of money no hey i don't begrudge anybody for wanting to make money i believe you should all pursue your own self-interest but somebody's self-interest is one that benefits them long term that benefits their reputation not something that hurts you if you're lying that's not within your self-interest if you want to steal and murder that's not within your self-interest you want to be corrupt and take money from people and purposefully not tell them how risky what the thing is that they're engaging in, that's that's not okay. That's morally wrong. That's not within their self-interest, but you see, they don't see that. In fact, there was another thing that was going on. I forgot to mention this. I was supposed to mention it when we were talking about mortgage-backed securities, but there was also um, variable interest rate mortgages, right? There, there, there were fixed rate mortgages and then there were variable, I think variable is the right term. There, there was a, f- a floating rate. Or I think it was called variable interest rates. And basically what that is is an interest rate that's based off of the market that constantly varies. It constantly floats around based off the current going rate for that loan. So uh, what this looks like is the reason this is highly desirable for or was highly desirable for a lot of people was because these individuals, they could get in at a much uh, at an introductory price, at an introductory interest rate, which was very, very low, a lot lower than what they could on the normal market. So if interest rates are super low, it's great because you're going to pocket a lot of the difference uh, of what you would pay if you if you went with a fixed rate. If you went with a fixed rate, it would have been like seven, maybe 8%, maybe, uh, or whatever, let's just use that for example. But with a variable rate, it may have been 5%. Four to five percent. Now I'm not trying to say these these are the actual rates, okay? That's not my. That's not what I'm trying to say. But that's that's the general concept, okay? So a variable rate gave you an introductory rate that was much lower than a fixed rate, and as long as interest rates stayed low, it was no problem. It was no big deal, right? So, but what would these people? And the the what makes this. It, the product itself is not unethical. What makes it unethical is that they were allowing, they were selling these types of mortgages to people who, frankly, never should have been involved, never ever should have had a mortgage in the first place. But they were selling all these mortgages to people without telling them what the real risks were. In my mind, that is what was immoral. That was what was unethical. Just one of the many things. But that's what was. That's what it was. They were selling this, this stuff, these mortgages, to people who probably never should have had a mortgage in the first place because, uh, especially if they were stated income loans or stuff, you know that the person can't afford it, right? I mean, of course, obviously, you probably could have someone who could afford it and just did a stated income loan for whatever reason, but most people who can afford it are not going to go for those types of loans. But the, these people, these, these were being sold to people who had no idea the type of risk they were taking. They were even told that if interest rates spiked then they could always just refinance at a lower interest rate and no big deal that was a lie it was either a lie or it was a gross lie or it was ignorance on the on the uh, real estate or the underwriter or whoever was telling them that it was a lie okay it was absolutely a lie that was not true at all the fact of the matter is that when rates spike because people are defaulting left and right on their mortgages, you are not gonna be able to refinance. No one's gonna to want to refinance your mortgage. Ladies and gentlemen, what is refinancing? Very, very basic stuff, right? This isn't even in investments. But what is a refinance? If I'm refinancing, I I what I am doing is I am getting another financial institution, could be my bank, could be another bank, okay. Could be a financial institution that's kind of bank like, but not really an official bank. It could, but what I'm doing is I am basically selling my mortgage to them and they're going to pay off my house by giving me another mortgage. But this mortgage that they're giving me is a lower interest rate, right? So effectively, somebody is buying my mortgage. Okay. Somebody is buying my mortgage and giving me a more desirable rate. You can do this a lot of times if you have been paying on for a period of time and they're saying, okay, you look like you're a very, very good person, a very, very good borrower. You're paying on your debts. You know, you're pay- you're not going to, you don't you look like you're, you have a very, very small chance of defaulting. Right. So we're going to allow you to re, you know, refinance at a lower rate because of how good of a debt slave you are. You're giving us our money. We're happy, whatever. It's more or less the idea. So a lot of people were being lied to about these variable interest rate mortgages. So when all this stuff started happening, there was nobody who wanted to buy that mortgage. You were defaulting. No one was going to buy the mortgage when you were defaulting. If you weren't defaulting, but other people were defaulting, everyone is not touching mortgages. No one wants to volume, okay, the amount of people who want to buy and sell, the amount of people who are interested in what you have dries up. All of a sudden, liquidity goes out the door. Liquidity tanks. That means you can't sell it. You can't sell your mortgage. Nobody wants it. No one wants to touch it. And that's what happened. So interest rates spiked. All these defaults happened. And the people who tried to refinance were unable to refinance. Nobody wanted to take their mortgages. You can understand why. So yeah, that was happening too. But it was incredibly... A lot of... So, so much unethical and immoral stuff. And again, before you want to start pointing your finger at the freaking banks and say these corrupt fat cats, these horrible people, look, the Federal Reserve is a private institution. Okay? It's basically a cartel of all the big, big national and even global banks that exist in this country. So... What the Federal Reserve did was, again, they took these mortgage-backed securities, they took these toxic assets onto their balance sheet. They bailed out these these corporations. They used taxpayer dollars to do this. Who do you think think benefited from that? Well, in this case, the Federal Reserve did, in this case. And some people benefited uh, eventually. Initially, they, most average day people did not, but some people did eventually benefit off this. It just took time. But the Federal Reserve, the, eventually, with all the money printing, with all the quantitative easing, all the money printing and buying up all these toxic assets and injecting market, money into the markets, with all this activity, the market seemingly started to rebound. I'm not even going to say recover because we all know that's a lie. It, didn't, it never recovered. We never recovered from the last crisis. And you could even say that we never really recovered from the crisis before that too. Every time they print money and they take toxic assets off on the market and they put it on their balance sheet, every freaking time they take money and they inject it into the economy, every freaking time they do that, it is not a recovery, ladies and gentlemen. It just isn't. They're just putting a band-aid on the problem, making it worse for future generations, making it worse in the future. That's all they're doing. So effectively, what they did was they took it all on their balance sheets. They printed tons of money and the market started to rebound. It started going back up again. Real estate prices went back up over time. Eventually, they did. And guess who owned all of those houses? Guess who owned a massive portion of them? Oh, it was the Federal Reserve. Look at that. The Bank of Banks, the bank in the sky, the central bank. They owned it all. They owned a massive amount of all of those toxic, once was deemed toxic assets. And you know what they did? They turned around and they sold every single one of those assets for a lot of money. Or at least they sold a lot of them. They sold a lot. Of, they may have taken a loss on some of them, but they sold, I, I don't know exactly, but they sold them and made a killing, made a killing off of them. What kind of lesson did? do you think was learned by this no greedy banker or for or hedge fund manager went to jail the banks were bailed out with taxpayer dollars through the form of money printing the invisible tax right inflation through the form of taking assets onto the the federal reserve's balance sheets and not making those banks pay for their greedy decisions Not, you know, certainly not the government. The government didn't take any responsibility for it. They didn't say, well, it was because of our laws and our regulations and our incentives that that forced the banks into this situation that allowed them to engage in this. No. You see, in the end, the banks and the the Wall Street knew that they were going to be bailed out. That's exactly what happened. In the end, they knew they were going to be bailed out. I mean, what is Wall Street? It's basically the banks. The banks and a lot of other financial institutions that are creating financial products to basically gamble and speculate on financial assets. That's what it is. There's hedge funds that trade the markets. There's other financial institutions, uh, all all kinds of stuff, right? All kinds of financial institutions, investing firms, hedge funds, companies that manage exchange-traded funds, all kinds of, of companies that are all built around the banks. Interesting to think about it, isn't it? It's basically Wall Street. Wall Street is a bunch of banks and other financial institutions that are all gambling and speculating on financial products. It's very, very highly risky. And yet we are told that it is a safe thing to give our money to them every single month, every single year, and to just give them our money and never take our money back. Just give them and buy and hold indefinitely pay whatever fees that you're paying indefinitely. Oh, don't worry. The market will always goes back up. Don't worry. The Fed will always print its way back out, you know, back out of the problem. Who do you think that really benefits? You think that benefits everybody else? Well, it may seem like it benefits you because you, you, your, your money is increasing. It's great, you know, but it's all unrealized profits. What it, unrealized profits are just profits or losses. Unrealized profits or losses are just profits or losses that haven't been realized yet, meaning you actually haven't sold. You're still holding on to it. So you don't know whether you're really, you know, you could say, oh, my account's up $100,000. Well, uh, with unrealized profits, yes, but you haven't sold. So you haven't realized any of those profits. Technically speaking, you could sell tomorrow and uh, the market could have tanked and instead of it being 100000 now it's 50000 Get what I'm saying? So it does initially feel good for us, but really the amount of money you're getting is just crumbs at a table. You know, the king is sitting up there eating his food and he's flicking some crumbs your way. The poor peasant who cleans up under the table who washes the table and cleans up by the poor servant. That's all it is. In the end, the financial sector of the ruling class, right? They are the ruling class. Wall Street's the ruling class. They're part of that. They're part of the oligarch that exists in America today. It's a mixture of big corporations and politicians and big corporations in Wall Street, the healthcare industry, the legal industry, all different types of industry, retail, everybody, right? Tons of, tons of different industry. They all have lobbyists, literally the wall, Wall Street's part of the ruling class and what pittance you're making for just buying and holding and never taking your money back from these crooks. It's just crumbs. And frankly, in my most humble opinion, now I'm, I'm, this is not financial recommendation. I'm not a licensed individual. Okay. I'm, I'm really not. So (laughs) My, any kind of performance that you hear me talk about or anything, it's, it's not typical. You are more than likely going to lose money. So there's your legal disclaimer for our overlords at the, uh, you know, in, in government, in government and the Securities Exchange Commission, SEC, uh, go, go consult a licensed individual, whatever, assume that I don't know what I'm talking about. Assume, <laughs> assume that this is all just for educational purposes only. That said, if it was me, I personally feel that at least for my own finances, I would be more benefited from learning how to manage it myself. Now, I have skills, skills that a lot of other people do not possess. I'm honing my skills constantly. I'm still back testing my strategies. But with that said, due to the skills that I do have, I think that the best way to handle it is to trade the markets, uh, for me, to trade the markets, not to invest long-term, passive investing. I, I disagree with that entirely. I think, I don't think anybody should, I, I, realistically, I don't know if I believe that anybody should be involved in passive investing. I think it's highly risky. It's not a recommendation. Okay. That's just my opinion. I don't think anybody should be actively or passively investing. If you're going to invest at all, actively invest, manage it, make sure. And again, not a recommendation, but I would make sure that I, I'm constantly looking at the investments and making sure that it makes sense. And if I don't know how to do that, I teach myself how to do that. I look for mentors, I educate, I read books, I take courses. This is what I've been doing for five, six years now. I learn how to manage my stuff so that I can manage it on my own. If I was to invest and I do intend on investing, I will actively manage it over time. I'll, I might look at it every six months, every maybe every six months, maybe every three months right? Maybe every quarter I look at my investments. Do they make sense? Okay, I'll stay in. What are the charts telling me? Okay, chart reading. Highly valuable skill. If you don't know anything, chart reading is one of the most valuable skills you could possibly possess in investing and trading. Because in the end, it doesn't really matter what the fundamentals are, what the data is, the financial statements, what the news is. It doesn't really matter. Because it's difficult to predict that stuff in the first place and to predict how the market's going to react. Earnings, you know, that's another one. It's very difficult. But knowing what the chart is telling you is much more accurate. Technical analysis, that's what they call that. Understanding patterns that exist because of human psychology. Understanding what the charts are telling you because the charts don't lie. They're fickle. They they seem to have a mind of their own, but they don't lie. Unlike the the talking pundits on the media, on the news. Right? So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're kind of, we're, we got down the rabbit hole, but look, no lesson was learned from f- 2008. And now the Fed thinks that all it has to do to print, to save the economy, is to print money. You see, the Fed gives you this, this often this impression that they're not, they're trying to fight inflation. This is a load of beer. This is a lie. Their entire goal is to cause it. Why? Well, at one point in time, In our nation's history, the Federal Reserve was viewed as an institution that only benefited the rich by inflating asset prices for the rich so that they could further enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. While they're enriching themselves, they're impoverishing everybody else. You see, this was a practice that was used by monarchs too. You know, I I am a monarchist. I know that might sound crazy because I'm a libertarian. How can you be a monarchist? I've talked about it at length. Uh, I think it's the, the most ideal situation because... I don't think that the world doesn't... I don't think it's possible to not have a government. I do The way I define government's a little different. I don't believe in the monopolistic uh, use of force that defines a state, a government. I believe that as long as you have the ability to use force, you are a government or a pseudo-government. You're kind of like a de facto, right? Maybe not official. So I believe it's impossible to not have a government at all. As a result of that... If you have to have a government, I think that the incentives of a privately owned government are better than the incentives of a publicly owned government. Privately owned government would be monarchy, okay? They own the government. The king, the royal family, they own the government. Publicly owned is, is your democracies, your republics. And, and what is democracy? It's just a soft version of communism. It's all it is. That's all democracy is, a soft version of communism, and that is a quote, not a word-for-word quote, but that is a quote from Hans-Hermann Hoppe. It's just a soft version of communism. That's it. In fact, communism, socialism, fascism, they're all children of democracy. They all came from children of the ideas of democracies and republics, okay? Just keep that in mind. But anyways, with that being stated, Kings did this too. they would print money, they would coin new coins with less valuable metal content and they, they would further enrich themselves. They would increase the supply of money by you know with with less with coins that are not nearly as valuable as the ones that they took in. They did this all the time. They were highly limited in what how much they could get away with this because everybody knew this is what they were doing. And they knew that it wasn't for the benefit of themselves, they knew it was for the benefit of the freaking king! That doesn't benefit us, they knew that! There was no lie that stated, oh, this benefits you. If kings could have convinced people that all of their actions were to the benefit of their subjects, of their citizens if kings could have convinced them then the kings would be doing the very things that all the the governments of democracies and republics are doing today the fact of the matter is that the very idea that they were king and that they owned the government it was theirs they could pass it down to their children it was literally like an estate an asset an investment for them the very idea that everybody knew who the king was and they shared no pow- and they shared no power with the king That very notion is what made people always hypersensitive to everything the king did, but but eventually we had democracy and republics and the Federal Reserve, and now the Federal Reserve is seen as a hero of the people, giving people the ability to buy houses and, and all this other garbage. And we're fighting inflation, we're trying to maintain the value of the dollar, maintain the value to be consistent and and even and and ultimately less volatile. none of that is true it's all a lie they their their very goal is to is to cause inflation that was that's their very goal to further enrich the rich and the wealthy, which is who they are. the ruling class control the federal reserve. And they want to effectively enrich themselves. They don't care who's at the expense of who else. They don't care about that. They don't care about you. That is the very idea. That is the very purpose of the Federal Reserve. Anything that, any kind of nice altruistic reason for the creation of the Federal Reserve to create a stable, you know, a stable currency, load of BS. It's a lie. I don't know if it's ever been true. I think it was just a lie, a cover-up story. Their goal was to devalue it and basically manipulate it for their own benefit. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what they're doing. That's what Michael Berry is trying to scream about. They're printing money at historically high rates. And he's worried, this is kind of the whole point of this episode, is because of Michael Berry and what he's been saying on Twitter and stuff of that nature. He thinks we're we're in for hyperinflation in the tune of the Weimar Republic and Venezuela. Freaking A. That should freak you. That should cause you to be concerned. He believes, like many other people, that when the, the vi- when the fear of the virus is over, vaccine has been distributed permanent. I know people in my personal life that are now signed up to get it. They're getting it. They're getting it. Like one of them, I think, is getting it like in a couple of days. A vaccine that is largely untested, a vaccine that is going to enrich the rich and the ruling class inside the medical industry, big pharma largely untested. Oh, and by the way, there's no legal recourse in the event that you have a really, really bad effect. Now, hopefully most people aren't going to have a really bad effect or any kind of bad side effects from this, but we don't know. We don't know the long-term. This thing has been developed way too fast. I don't trust it. Besides, I don't think there's a reason to have it in the first place. I don't think the virus is an issue. But when all of this is over, when sentiment recovers, when people get out there, if they are not scarred by this whole event and they do not save all of this money and they go out there and spend it, because in this case, we actually printed money as a government, as the Federal Reserve, and we gave it to the people, everyday people. We didn't just give it to, like in the last crisis, they printed money and they gave it to corporations, banks, institutions. That's who they gave it to. No, no, no. This time, they're giving it to those those places too, mind you. Many corporations are getting it, both financial and non-financial institutions, but everyday people are getting the money. What do you think they're going to do with it? Well, if they're not scarred, like the great the generation of the Great Depressions, and they don't start to live out a life of frugality, which I think is a bit of a long shot. I mentioned this in, in another uh, episode that I did a little while ago. It's a possibility that that could happen, but I think it's a bit of a long shot. I really do. I don't know how likely that is to occur. I don't think people are incredibly scarred from it and are going to start adopting a new life of frugality. I don't think a lot of people have managed their money to even be able to be frugal. Most people are living right on the brink of destruction financially. Most people have more debt than they ever should have had. They're underwater. They have drowned already. Right? They're drowning. They're not over forget being over their neck. They're over their head in in debt. And they don't have the money and they barely have the money to cover it. They're not living under their means. They aren't living at their means. They're living above their means. And all it takes is for them to lose their job, and they are screwed. They have no savings. Nothing. They're not working on getting rid of their debt. Nothing. So, ladies and gentlemen, he's warning, Michael Berry is warning, that when people start, when when the system, when everybody recovers, and sentiment recovers, and people start to get out there, and they start to... You know, live, you get back to a sense of normalcy. I mean, right now, currently, uh, yes, many people ha- have maintained their jobs; they're doing okay because of unemployment and stuff. Again, unemployment is all printed money, too. By the way, do you think that money comes from se- any kind of reserves? I doubt it. Pretty sure it's just savings. Pretty sure that's all it is. So, ladies and gentlemen there is money to the tune of trillions of dollars that are being created being injected into everyday people's hands like i said last time it was all being given to the financial institutions it was all all that money was being given directly to the rich and the wealthy and they don't use the money in the same way that the poor people do remember poor people is not a financial uh, how would you say? It's it's not a financial status symbol, okay? If you're poor, that doesn't mean that you have no money. It means that you are poor poverty and, and being poor is a, men- a mental state that you have about money. Being poor doesn't mean you're broke. There's a lot of really, really, really rich, poor people out there. A lot of people who have high incomes and who have massive amounts of money that are very poor. Poor people spend virtually every dime that they make. They don't invest, they don't save. They have a very, very high time preference, okay? Time preferences are an economic term. If you have a high time preference, you spend everything you make. If you have a low time preference, you're, you're, you're future-oriented. High time preference, you're very short-sighted, very short. You, you only see things very short-term. Low time preference, future-oriented. You save, you invest, Okay. Just easy way of keeping that in mind Mo- poor people have a very high time preference they they spend everything they do not save they do not invest none of it and when bad things happen they play the victim card they always think it's because of some other reason for why the bad thing happened it's never because of their it's never because of them it's never their fault they don't take responsibility for their actions. They do not view life as being one that they create. They do not view life as being in their control. They have an external locus of control if you're talking about psychology. They always think that something else outside of their control is causing their problems. Racism, feminism, sexism. Well, it wouldn't be feminism. It's uh, sexism, <laughs> you know, uh, ageism. <laughs> uh, garbage like that, right? So that's what they say. That's a poverty mentality. A wealth mentality is one where I control my life, right? I have a certain amount of control and my, I take responsibility for my actions. Something bad happens to me. I come, I realize that it was probably my fault. I made choices that either made the situation worse, assuming that it really wasn't because there are stuff that happened to us that isn't our control, but we can make decisions. We, we choose how we respond and someone who has a wealthy mentality understands that my reaction determines the direction and determines how bad things get or how good things are or how good things get. So a wealthy person sees nothing but opportunity. A wealthy person understands that they are the captain of their fate. They are the master of their soul. In in fact, in the big short, that very quote was framed in Michael Berry's office. I don't even, I I don't know if that's how, I'm assuming that the, the movie focused on that image And I'm assuming that that was an image that Michael Burry really did truly believe and probably did have in his office. Poor guy was so disgusted by how his investors treated him, was so disgusted by the whole thing that he he only managed that fund for like another year or two and then he just went off and did his own thing. He's just managed his own money and he took kind of a hiatus for a long time. Now he's back sounding the warning calls shooting up flares and red signals, red flags, telling people that the minute that every, all this money printing, the minute that people start to get back to normal, they're going to spend it. They're not going to save it. And when that happens, what is that going to cause? How is our economy going to look? He thinks it could result in a Weimar Republic, Venezuelan style hyperinflation scenario where inflation gets out of hand everyday prices of things just go up and uh, uh, across the board now nothing goes up across the board evenly everywhere okay but when money creation ie inflation gets out of hand lots of stuff go up winners and lo- there will always be winners and losers in every environment but it's incredibly hard to know what to do now this is a very scary message this is a very depressing message and i want this to be made very 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 clear I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have a crystal ball. I say that on the show all the time. I don't know what's going to happen. Okay? I'm a very smart guy. Yeah, I am. I don't say that to be arrogant. I used to to say that I was dumb. I used to legitimately think I was dumb. I had a hard time in school. I was never really, the. I tried really hard, but I never really got the, the best grades, right? I have always said that I was stupid. So when I say that I'm smart, not doing it because I'm arrogant. I'm actually saying it because it's important for me to say it. I don't. Want to, I no longer believe that I'm dumb, and I'm happy because I, I used to be very depressed because I, I legitimately thought I was stupid for a long time. So you know, don't tell yourself negative things. Uh, you need you need to stop telling have negative self talk. You need to start telling building yourself up, even if it's not true. Build yourself up. Eventually, a lie becomes truth, or well, you repeat a lie enough and it becomes true. But eventually But it, when we, when you're doing it, you need to take action so that. What you're telling yourself is true. And I'm not trying to say that I was telling myself I was dumb when I wasn't, or I'm not trying to say I was telling myself I'm when I was, I'm not trying to say that I was telling myself that I'm, I was smart when I wasn't or anything. I'm just, I'm just saying, anyways, I don't say it out of arrogance. Okay. Just try to understand that. I, I, I consider myself to be a fairly intelligent, very smart individual. Okay. Uh, this stuff does scare me. I know my, Michael Berry accurately predicted the financial crisis in 2008, and he's calling again for another prediction. Is it really going to be hyperinflation? I I, I don't know. I really don't know. And it's depressing. It's scary because if it does, dude, I, I don't I, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, the Federal Reserve would have to create some other kind of monetary you know, a currency or something. I don't know. They'd have to create something else so that they can basically continue to fund their operations without continuing to cause hyperinflation, which may actually end up happening. They may end up creating some alternative form of bond that only they can buy. They, uh, the, you know, they might end up creating some other form of a medium of exchange or something something of that nature that could provide liquidity, but that doesn't really have quite the same effect uh on the, the total economy. So they may do that. What I think is it could happen if inflation, if monetary devaluation, right? Uh prices rising. That's what I, I like to call prices rising monetary devaluation because it more accurately uh, names what's actually going on. If you call prices rising inflation, that's not really what prices rise. That's not really what inflation is. Inflation is the increase in the monetary supply, right? But when your monetary devaluation is when prices rise, that's what I, that's how I classify it. So when monetary devaluation is happening and you're seeing prices rise on a very, very large scale, if that does occur, and I think there's a very good chance that it could. I think they will, instead of it turning into a Weimar Republic kind of situation, I think the Fed, the government, I think they will create something to offset that risk and to stop it from happening. I don't know. I really don't know. But a lot of people think the Federal Reserve is out of, uh, is out of tricks. Given the current situation, they are. They can't raise interest rates. They'll tank the economy. You know, mortgages, loans, they're all dependent on high interest, on low interest rates. If they raise them, that's going to tank the economy heavily. Which could happen, you know. Typically, when inflation, uh, you know, when money printing gets out of hand and it causes uh, rampant, uncontrollable monetary devaluation, you know, prices rising. When that happens, the way they would respond historically would be how they would tamp that down is by raising interest rates. But if they do that, they will cause a massive crisis bigger than the one they already have. They would cause everything to tank and fall. So I don't, they don't really have access to that. They could print more money, but then you got the law of diminishing returns, right? You know, eventually it's going to be less and less effective and you're going to have to do more and more of it. And if that money starts finding its way into the hands of everyday people, which it is doing so, it could cause very noticeable prices to rise. It could cause a very noticeable rise in prices. It absolutely could. This is not an overstatement. I'm not trying to overstate this to sell you guys a a product or service. I have nothing. I'm not going to do any affiliate marketing services. I've got no courses. I'm not even a consistently profitable trader. I would not feel ethically okay unless you guys were willing to, you know, get into a live trading room with me even though I'm not a consistently profitable trader. But even then, I would need to be trading with live money. I'm not even doing that. I'm still confirming my strategies right now. I've got nothing. Nothing. Okay, I'm not going to pinch my affiliate. I'm not going to pinch silver and gold. I think you need to be aware of it. That's why I'm telling you this. I'm scared too. That's why I'm telling you this. I'm getting my fears out there. Out there in the public. I'm, I'm letting you guys know. I don't want you to panic. Please don't panic, okay? But if you only got a few thousand dollars in gold and silver, I don't think that's enough. I really don't. I mean, I've got, I've got you know, I have a little bit of silver. I don't have a ton but I got a little bit. I'm putting more in all the time. And yeah, I would probably... I'm going to continue to buy more. If I can get it... If I can get my hands on gold, I'm going to do that. But, you know, so far, I've got a lot of money, but none of it's earmarked for buying gold. Maybe I'm going to have to start re-earmarking some of the money reserves that I have. But still, it's not going to... No matter how much money I do, it's... I don't have enough money to offset the risk entirely. If this stuff happens it's dangerous. It's scary. I think I I do. But here, instead of being horribly, horribly depressing, because I'm getting depressed already, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been hearing this message for a long time now. Hyperinflation is coming. Back in 2008, Austrian economists, some of them said hyperinflation was coming. They were baffled when it didn't. Okay. Back in 2000, people have always been claiming that hyperinflation is coming. All right. It always seems to elude everybody. When people start to claim that Michael Berry is a very smart guy, okay, but there is a chance that he's wrong. Maybe we will see some prices rising. Maybe we will see our money becoming devalued. But hyperinflation may not actually occur. Okay, he's a very good guy. I don't doubt Michael Berry. But every single time people call for this stuff, it tends to not to, mater- to materialize. Now I'm not trying to say that to. I don't want you to be lured into a false sense of security. This is something we need to be heavily concerned about. But look, I've been hearing this message for probably, gosh, six, seven years now. All right? Here's... So I'm kind of immune... Not immune to it. I'm I'm a bit resistant. I used to get horribly depressed when I heard it. Now I'm like, okay, yeah, I've been hearing that for a long time. It still hasn't happened. I don't doubt that it won't happen at some point in time in the future. I know that it will. I, I, I believe very strongly that it will happen at some point in time in the future. But it hasn't happened yet, despite all the claims. Here's what I will say. Here's I do not want to end this episode on a horribly depressing note. And the only reason I decided to do this episode was because uh, another podcast that I listened to from one of my mentors, you know, great, amazing guy and everything, you know, they, he did, he did an episode on this and I thought it was really great. It's right up my wheelhouse. I love talking about this stuff. So I decided to do an episode on it too. I tried, tried to, add a bit more information in there and whatnot. I try to cover all the points that I remember him covering in the episode. So, you know, but I I tried to put my own spin on it. Right. And I did. I talked about stuff that he didn't talk about and and so on and so forth. But, you know, ultimately I put my own spin on the subject and yeah, went from there. I think it turned out pretty good. I do feel like I kind of rushed through it. I do apologize for that. If I went too fast, I was just, this is already becoming a very, very long episode, uh, much longer than normal. And I just, I wanted to make sure I got all my ideas out there. But ladies and gentlemen, look, here's, let's, instead of ending it on a horribly depressing note and saying, oh, the world's going to end and good luck, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Good, good luck. Hope, hopefully you don't drown. Instead of say, leaving it in that way, there are things I th- I believe that we can do, but we need to start working on them now. I'm working on them now and it's the same message I've always had. Okay. Take control of the source of your income and become financially free, right? You need to control where your income is coming from. You need to start a business of some sort. You need to start earning money that is not tied to your job, okay? Whether that's blogging, vlogging, podcasting, trading, maybe you got a skill you want to teach somebody else. I don't care what it is. Affiliate marketing, I don't care. You need to control the source of your income. You need to have a personal brand. I know that's kind of... I've heard a lot of people say that's kind of getting a bit of a dirty term. I I don't understand why, but basically all a personal brand is is it's your reputation that you have. You need a good reputation. You need people to trust you. That's what you need. You need trust. You need to build a community of individuals that trust who you are and what you have to say. If you are a good person, I believe that you have... A mandate to do that. you are, you should be you you're obligated to do this. we need more good people doing this. so you need to take control of the source of your income, whatever that way looks for you, however that looks for you, and then you need to achieve mobile income. you don't even have to make a ton of money, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to be super filthy rich, right? All you got to do is have enough money to live off of and mobile income. And you can go to a country where it's not as expensive to live. Me and my family, when I start making enough money, which I'm currently not, I don't have enough money to take over my wife's income right now. Okay. But ladies and gentlemen, when that day comes, I'm looking into Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula. I've always grown up in Texas knowing that, you know, Mexico is, it's drug ridden and with lots of sex trafficking. Well, that's true for the northern, the the, the border, the northern part of Mexico. That is true. It's very dangerous there. Although I I will say as a teenager, when I was in high school, I did do some mission trips in Chihuahua, Mexico, and we passed over the border just fine, but I was with a, a, a youth group and stuff, and that was a different time. The fact of the matter is that those things have gotten worse right but there are areas in mexico that i have heard that are actually very safe very prosperous who va- who so far have heavily valued your personal freedoms places where the, no one locked down at all and you got the prime minister of new mexico of mexico who's coming out and saying that you know freedom of speech is essential people need to move to other different platforms you like like telegram and stuff like that now granted look the prime minister of mexico is by no means a free market laissez say as fair kind of guy but if he is being genuine about that, he is right. At least he's, you know, saying it. It's, I don't know, it's nice. To, at least it's nice to hear someone pay lip service to it. I, I hope he values that. But I know that Mexico has a much better tax structure than America does. Uh, you could go to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is obviously not in Mexico, but Puerto Rico, I mean, if you set up a company there that makes money outside of Puerto Rico, you only have to pay 4% tax on the company's income. You pay yourself whatever income you want and that's not taxed at all. And whatever money you make in Puerto Rico, that your company that's set up in Puerto Rico makes, it is tax exempt from the U.S. taxes. It's one way that people in the U.S. can have their money tax free and you're uh, you're only taxed a flat rate of 4% and that's only the company that's set up in Puerto Rico that makes money outside of Puerto Rico. How amazing is that? Puerto Rico has a lot of unsafe areas ladies and gentlemen it's not a very big place it's a small island but there are some very very safe communities and safe areas even inside such a small country like Puerto Rico All right So that's the stuff that I'm looking at all right ladies and gentlemen but look if you, we haven't achieved that yet you if you're listening to me more than likely have not achieved that yet the bulk of my listeners are still are in the United States I got some people, I've gotten some downloads from Russia, Cambodia. That's freaking awesome, by the way. I think that's amazing. Really, really cool stuff. Got some people from Canada. You know, we're, we're getting people outside the U.S. Freaking cool. Welcome. I do not know how to speak any of those languages, right? Freaking cool. But if you are in the U.S., and most of you are, you need to be striving to take control over the source of your income and to achieve mobile income. Even if you can't leave, the best thing you can do is to build up your assets that are going to rise with inflation. Okay, so that's gold, silver, real estate, not a financial advice, just my opinion. It's what I'm doing, right? You need to build that stuff up. But in the end, you're not, more than likely, you're not independently wealthy. You don't have enough money to, to live off that. So do as much as you can, but just know you're not going to be able to live off it because really what you need is you need a consistent source of income that you control that is ideally mobile. But even if it's not, you need a consistent source of income that you control that allows you to constantly flow and to con- consistently live off of and put into assets that are going to rise in value. You need to be constantly putting, having a, a stream of income that you can put in and out, in and out to protect your money you need a consistent form of income because let's be honest a lot of people think that corporations really like inflation if they're if they're intelligent and if they really truly know i, I don't think they do because it makes it more expensive to do what they want to do it makes it more expensive for them to make money and it reduces their profit margins it does not benefit them it also reduces sales when prices rise because wages lag behind you know, monetary devaluation, uh, prices rising, wages lag. They're one of the last items to move when inflation starts to tick up and prices start to, and in monetary devaluation starts to be rampant and whatnot. Wages are one of the last things to move. They're very slow. They lag behind it. It's not good for businesses either, despite what a lot of people think. So ladies and gentlemen, it's bad for everyone. The only people that benefits are the rich and wealthy who have tons of assets, billions of dollars worth. And that ain't you and me. It's just the truth. But there are things that we can do. Again, I would if it was me, I- I- I'm-, I'm investing in my skills. Okay, I got this podcast. I'm trying to grow this podcast. I'm trying to get very, very good at trading, forex trading, options trading. That's my wheelhouse. That's what I'm focusing on. Uh, right now, I'm backtesting strategies on the forex market. And then eventually, I will move those into the options market as well. I'm trying to learn how to you know, consistently pull money out of the market and become a consistently profitable trader. Okay. And I think that's highly valuable. In fact, I'm even, I'm even considering canning the Liberty informant because frankly, it takes time away from what I really want to do. I I don't, I'm, I'm, it's very difficult. I think I'm going to can it. I think I'm just going to stop, you know, in the end, I know some of you guys may like it, but it's really preventing me from doing stuff in trading. And I don't like that. And right now I don't think you guys are liking it enough to justify doing it. So no one's subscribe, <laughs> no one's subscribing because of the Liberty Informant as far as I'm aware. And that may, maybe, maybe I'm not giving it enough time. I know I haven't been doing it for that long, but I really want to do trading. I really want to focus more on that. I, 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 my goal is to become be, to be trading with real money before the end of this year. So that means I got to bust my rear end and and make time for it in in any way that I can. And it already takes a long time to edit these episodes out. I need all the time I can get. So I think that's going to be done. I was thinking about recording some of me doing some backtesting so you guys could get an idea of what it looks like. Uh, I haven't really decided because that would just be replacing you know, the Liberty informant for that. And that could be editing. Maybe if I do that, I don't think I'm going to be on the actual camera. It's just going to be me looking at charts and talking and with very little editing involved. So I, I don't know. All right. With that said, those are the things that we can do. Invest in ourselves, invest in our own human capital, making us as valuable as possible, investing, you know, learning highly, highly valuable skills, right? Trading, investing, that type of stuff, you know, personal finances, whatever your, your stick is. And then, you know, taking control of the source of our income, having that consistent stream of income that you control and trying to get it to be mobile income. And then of course, yes, it, you know, if you've got a lot of money, focus on the asset, the assets that are going to rise with inflation. But if you are lacking for money, you only got a few thousand dollars, I don't know how helpful it really is going to be. I'm not going to say it won't be helpful at all. I just don't think it's going to be as helpful as many people would like to say, right? If it, it, you, but one of the other most important things is getting rid of the debt. I mean, if you've got debt, you need to get rid of that sucker. Get rid of as much of it as possible. Me and my wife, we're, we're going to sell this house to get out from under it. We don't want the debt and the liability hanging over our heads, which is crazy because we've only been here for two years now. But on top of that, we're about to pay off my, my last car debt. And the only debt we'll have after that is my student loans. That's it. My wife has her student loans paid off. We will almost be debt free. Amazing. And I don't mean to brag, but amazing. If you are getting to if you are debt free or you're getting close, you need to celebrate it when you achieve it. Celebrate. Do something big. It's important. We need to focus on getting rid of our debt because that will free up more cash flow for us to do things that we need to do. But I think investing in ourselves, investing in our businesses, investing in our skill sets and investing when we have a lot of money, investing in assets, even if you got a little bit, invest what you can in assets that rise in value. I think that's a good idea. Again, it's not a recommendation, you know, per the uh, the disclaimer I already did the er- <laughs> earlier in the show, but I think it's incredibly valuable. So, anyways, ladies and gentlemen, that's gonna be it for the episode. I know this went really long. I thought it was really important to get all that information in there. I I, I hope it was very valuable to you. I hope I did a good job explaining it. I, I do apologize if I went too fast, and I hope I did a good job. I really, really hope that I did. But you know, uh, uh, one more thing: uh, you need a community of people because a lot of us won't have the ability to get out of the country if this is really that fast, that close, and. You know, within the five, next five to 10 years, if we can't get out of the country, and I don't know, I don't know if it's, it's going to take that long or not. I have no idea. What I know is that if we can't leave, we need a community of individuals that we can all rely on and protect, use to protect each other. That's what we need of like-minded individuals. So we need to get really, really, really good at finding a group of like-minded people in our local areas and online, all of that. We cannot survive on our own. So I I, I I really, really want to stress that. Okay? So that being said, ladies and gentlemen, again, that's going to be the end of the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I very much did. If you liked it, make sure to like and subscribe. Make sure to head over to iTunes. Leave me a rating review. It's one of the ways we get this show to be more visible. You know, it allows us to get on the rankings and stuff. If you're doing that, I know it's asking a lot for you guys. They're very busy. But hey, if you like what I'm doing here, help me spread this message and help me spread the message of the show, right? Help me do that. I can't do it without you guys. I need you guys to go and leave a rating review. If you guys are loving what I'm doing here, then please take the time to do that. It really, really helps. Also, this message, this warning that I just did, this episode, it's hard to listen to, but there's a lot of people that need to hear it. Okay. If you do not have the, 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 the knowledge and the know-how to go and, and, and sound the alarm, let me be the one that do it. Please share the show, share the show with people that you, that are in your life that you think would get a lot of benefit out of it. I always say, share it with three friends, th- share it with someone, two people that you know, are going to love it. One person you're not so sure, but you think they're going to, you think they need to hear it. And you know, hit that share button. If you're on Gab, Parler, Twitter, wherever, hit the share button. Make sure to share it, okay? If you see it pop up on the platform that you are on, make sure to share it. It needs to be shared. People need to hear it. We're trying to sound the alarm. This stuff could be coming down the line. I think it is. I don't know when it happens. I hope it never happens, but I think there's a very high chance of it happening. And if it is, we all need to be prepared. So please share the show and in particular, please share this message. Okay, that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I love you. Thank you so much for coming here. You know, you guys coming here is what, it just, it gives me, it fills me up with, it warms my heart, and it fills me up with so much joy and and hope in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, you guys are absolutely amazing. Thank you for coming here each and every day. If you want to know what's going to happen in the future, you come and you listen to the show today. And, I, and I, I'm very, very appreciative of you guys coming here each and every week and, and spending, spending an hour or in this case, close, or in this case, over an hour with me. But, you know, I love it. Thank you so much. I love you guys, each and every one of you. That being said, as always, know the risks, plan accordingly, and have a great day.